The work of this church in the world is realized through the generous financial support of all who call this place home. Along with the gifts and time and talent, ours is a shared ministry. You have a role to play here. Church membership is open to all. For more information, go to uusf.org. One look at the Hebrew scriptures, a holy text in three different religions, and you will know a couple of central truths about families. First, how full of eccentric, quirky, and strange human beings they are. Just one biblical story you might be familiar with has a member of a family who thinks the world is ending and so builds an enormous boat and sends about, sets about filling it with every animal he can find. Can you imagine what the neighbors must have thought? And then there's Joseph running around in his technicolor dream coat, which probably was the talk of whatever small town he was in. And by the way, that particular coat, it turns out it didn't end well. I think it brought jealousy upon his family, which brings us to the other part of families that you see so clearly illustrated in these ancient stories too, how destructive and hurtful they can be sometimes. You may recall Joseph's brothers threw him into a well because he was the favorite son of their father. But of course, that's not as bad as what Cain did to Abel. And also there's Jacob who, I mean, put lambskin on his arms and went into his father's, beside his father's deathbed. So when his father touched his son's arm, he would mistake the son for the older brother and confer inheritance on the wrong son. I mean, you can't make these stories up. <laughs> but I bet you have your own. The best memoirs and the best hours together, or gathered around a holiday table after a meal, for instance, are filled with the telling and the hearing of such stories, aren't they? Elie Wiesel said once that God made humans because God loves stories. Well, if so, God got what God wished for, which, as we all know, is often a mixed blessing. <laughs> when Mary Carr, whose now famous modern memoir, The Liars Club, was first published, she wrote about what it was like to go out on the road to promote the book. Carr's family was, to put it mildly, complicated. It included a mother, a passionate artist who also had some mental health struggles, and at one point put all of the family's belongings into the front yard and lit it into the neighborhood's largest unplanned, unscheduled bonfire ever, and then was hospitalized. Promoting the book, Carr writes, I'd set out on the road the first time with soul-sucking dread fearing that people I loved most in the world would be bantered about as grotesques, myself pitied as some Dickensian orphan. But the opposite happened. In towns across the country, readers of every class and stripe confided about childhoods that certainly differed from mine in terms of surface 
pyrotechnics, but the feelings were identical. As I went from town to town, I felt a community assembling around me. Which is to say, all evidence points to the fact that there's a good chance that you and I also live in families with our own kind of pyrotechnics that happen from time to time. And so the need to know, especially in this particular season, to talk about how we navigate life in the midst of it. Danielle Evans, in her book, The Office of Historical Corrections, has a story about a mother and her efforts to set the record straight about a wrong that was done to another family member. And the daughter, the story, is told from the daughter's perspective, which includes how she tries to understand and reconcile and heal some of this generational hurt. What the daughter writes as the beginning of her road to understanding is, here is what you have to understand about my mother's childhood. It wasn't one. Which in many ways, is where many of us have to begin, I think, this journey of love and understanding in our families, back as far as we can go to the beginning of it all, because, because families hand on inheritance, ones that aren't just material. But like material inheritance, we will get both the wealth they have amassed in their lives handed on to us, and also some unpaid debts. Spiritually and emotionally, that means we will get the gifts of wisdom and compassion that they have to hand on to us, and also some unfinished business. We get both. The blessings, the wealth, to use the metaphor, are often really obvious to us, and more so as life goes on, particularly maybe as we parent or companion other young people in their lives, right? We see that we learned to live, say, with pride or purpose by watching how they did it, or maybe we learned how to face adversity without being crushed, how to find joy in very simple, beautiful circumstances because they modeled it. We are aware, if we reflect at all, on the ways in which they worked to love us. All that they taught us, right? From tying our shoes to cooking an egg to a thousand life skills we would need as we stepped into the world on our own. And many of them taught us intentionally, too, some of the things we would need to survive in a scary world. They chose to teach us how to walk in a dark street alone at night in a city as a woman, as I was taught. Or how to survive an encounter with police as so many black men and men of color are taught in this country. Or how to pump the brakes when the car skid on the ice. The people who nurtured us gave us tremendous gifts. And some of those gifts also, it bears mentioning, were ones handed down for generations, which when we see it is this awe-inspiring legacy of wisdom and learning. 
And on the other side of the ledger is some unfinished business, almost always. This also gets handed down. Inevitably, I've come to see what our grandfathers or grandmothers didn't wrestle into some form of resolution got passed down to our parents. It's one of the big tragedies, in fact, I think, of trauma is that so rarely does it only affect one person, the one directly affected. But so often if harm is inflicted, personal harm or structural harm like racist trauma or the trauma of poverty or the war against women or homophobia or ableism or all the traumas that are out there, all the hurts, is that they have these effects that are likely going to be passed down beyond one generation until some generation finds the tools and support to heal it. Which is what I think is often at the heart of why being with family might be hard sometimes is that maybe we're put face to face with a reminder of that unfinished business that is our parents or our aunts or our uncles or our cousins to do, and maybe back through time given to them, but also here's the kicker that was also handed on to us to do. So being with family can be tough It reminds us of the hard work we're given to wrestle with, the stuff we see at the deathbed. Even when we say we love one another, causes us to fight, avoid each other at the worst. But also one of the sacred invitations of family life. Years ago, I studied something called family systems theory. It's a school of psychology. And what I took away is that it holds who we are and how we are in the world as something that is shaped deeply by the role that we played in our family of origin, or we're forced to play. And how that experience will often shape the roles we will play, even unconsciously, in the circles of friends or the communities or the families we will make or choose as adults. And here's the other thing it says. It says that we have the power in the face of all of this to try and stay what the literature calls differentiated. Differentiated, this fancy word for trying to be clear about what we want and what we need and what our hope is to make real in each encounter and relationship we have. It's super hard to get clear about those things sometimes, particularly if we've been in systems and in a world that doesn't allow us to think so clearly about what it is we want and need. But you can see why it's important, why even Mari's prayers on the plane back home to Texas got followed by the bickering that started almost immediately, a clear example of how hard it is to stay differentiated when we're back in these systems of family or larger world. It can be like digging your toes in in the sand against some riptide or the waves, right? It's hard. 
guys, you work. You can be buffeted about. But here's this other thing. I think as we increasingly talk about what life skills we need to be in the world the way we want to be, I think that this is a key skill to being a healer in the world. Because you and I, we don't just need to be differentiated and learn to do that when we're at home or when Uncle George comes to visit, right? We need to bring this skill into the work of remaking all the systems that we move through and are part of. All these systems which, like our own families, sometimes can resist healing, continue to dig in in patterns that are not good for them, even broken, and to buck and change systems in the world, and everything is a kind of system of energy and relationships. We need to get super good at this differentiation and how to walk through it as people who have hmm, a perspective of faith about what it means to stay whole in the midst of this. And family, it's like a petri dish laboratory for learning how to do this. And I think, if I can boil it down, that to step into the laboratory of change and making healing, you and I are going to need three things. We're going to need to be practiced in all the ways we can do that, journaling, prayer, reflection, conversation with friends and trusted advisors about how we want to be in relationship to the person or the people that we're about to meet. What values are important to us that we want to put center as we step into those moments? What we need to ask for so that we can be authentically, legitimately present in those spaces, as legitimately present as we can hope for. I think the second thing we need is perspective on the person or people we're engaging. Some appreciation for what they've done and for what life handed them that was hard and broken that they've struggled to make sense of and make meaning, what great things they have done with what they were given. Empathy because, as a wise woman told me when I was ordained, people don't change unless they know they're loved, or at least seen and understood. And then we need to enter in with the hope and expectation of hanging on to connectedness, if at all possible, because we are not a people, Unitarian Universalists, for whom other people are expendable. And so to step in to see if there's a way for both of us, for all of us, to be able to stay in the room and find a new way of being together. So perhaps you don't want to be guilted by your mother for leaving Oklahoma. You're a bit tired of it. You prepare for what you need to say, not to fix her, but to be the daughter you want to be, one not triggered by anger or guilt. 
You think as you prepare about all you know about her and her circumstances, all she's told you. Maybe you know that, like the character in Danielle Evans' story, your mother didn't have a childhood, or perhaps the permission to follow her dreams the way you have. Maybe you realize that it will be hard for her forever to reconcile herself to the reality of how she has lost twice in this life. She didn't have the independent life that you had, and by encouraging you to have it, she has lost what she loves most in the world in some fundamental, intimate way. And maybe you find a way to say that. Or whatever your version of that is. She might not have a great epiphany, your mom or whoever you're talking to, all might not be healed, it probably won't, but you will have stepped in the adult you want to be, the daughter you want to be, the wise person who sees a legacy of generations, the gifts, the unfinished business, how it all gets handed down, no parsing of the lot of it. I think maybe this is the start of how we move toward healing, and it probably happens just in time for the forgiveness that we're going to need ourselves <laughs> as people who also pass on things we didn't want to or mean to. People who also want to be loved and want to have the burdens of life lifted and want the karmic circle of hurt and brokenness to end wherever it is in our lives and in our world. And family can be the first place we are invited to learn all of this, a place where the stakes feel unavoidable and high and important and where we have these holidays where we keep being asked to show up. And so we might as well practice As Joy Harjo wrote in her poem, you are fed by generations. You carry songs of grief, triumph, loss, and joy. Feel their power as they ascend within you, as you walk, run swiftly, even fly into infinite possibilities. Let go that which burdens you, if you can. Let go any acts of unkindness or brutality from or against you. Let go that which burdened your family, your community, your nation, or disturbed your soul. Let go and breathe into one another. Pray for this earth we are. Pray for this becoming we are, this sunlight touching skin we are, this cooling dark we are. Listen as earth sheds her skin, maybe do likewise. Listen as generations move one against the other to make power. We are bringing in a new story. We will be accompanied by ancient songs. We will celebrate together, breathe this new dawn, assist as it opens its mouth, 
to sing. Oh, family. Oh, family. Ooh, family. For all we inherited from the places and the people who nurtured us and the blessings and the infinite good of it, and all we inherited that still work to be done and blessings on our efforts to heal what needs healing. And may the ways we learn to heal the world, sing new songs, and usher in new dawns with what we learn from our wild, idiosyncratic, complicated, gorgeous families. May it bless those beyond our reach. Amen. I left home, San Antonio, in my 20s. Sure, I'd return to my roots one day. 30 years later, here I am, an empty nester in the Bay Area. <laughs> I never moved back, but my ties to family are strong, and I never missed a Christmas in Texas while my father was alive. Christmas Eve dinners at my parents' house were raucous affairs with the entire family crowded around the dinner table. My father, an amazing storyteller, anchored the event. After the dinner plates were cleared and the dessert was brought to the table to a cheery round of, queremos pastel, 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 one of us would tee him up. Oye, papi, tell us the story about Saul and the soccer ball he made out of leather scraps from his father's shoe repair shop. And off my father would go, the great raconteur transporting us to 1930s Mexico with his lively stories. My father had been an outdoorsman in his youth. In retirement, he was still active, but he had been a smoker all his life and his health began to deteriorate from COPD. Over time, his breathing became more and more laborious, and he eventually became bedbound. He was a classic Mexican patriarch, so his declining health was humiliating to him. As he became increasingly dependent on others, his distinguished character turned bombastic and controlling. He ran off so many home nurses that eventually the agencies refused to send in any more, and my mother, a retired registered nurse, became his sole caregiver. I'm the only girl in the family and was forever straddling the line between my upbringing with its cultural expectations for women and my elemental repulsion at any attempt to circumscribe the expression of my humanity. My divorce didn't help my relationship with my parents. My father considered me scandalously recalcitrant, so I suppose it was inevitable that in the later stages of his decline, my presence would set him off and he would try to control me with almost farcical resolve. <laughs> Bring me coffee. Ask me nicely. Bring me coffee. Okay, here you go. 
It's cold. No, it's not. I just made it. I don't like this cup. What's wrong with the cup? Mm, it's too big. Okay, here's a smaller cup. Now it's really cold. No, it's not. I can see the steam. Put it in the microwave. Ask me nicely. Put it in the microwave. Okay, I'll put it in the microwave. How long would you like it? Three seconds. Well, it makes me laugh now. I am embarrassed to say that at the time, I reacted to his incessant testing with the grace of a howler monkey. I began to prepare for my visits to San Antonio by meditating on the flight over. This time it'll be different. This time I'm ready, I'm ready, I'd say. The plane would land, we'd arrive at the house, I'd take a deep breath, go into my father's room, and in less than five minutes, we'd be yelling at each other again. <sighs> On one of my last visits, we had an especially explosive time. Exasperated by our relentless volatility and disappointed in my inability to fix it, I collapsed into the chair next to his bed, brooding. We sat in silence. Finally, he said, you know something? Que? You and me, we are two roosters in a pen. I nodded. And then he said, but do you know I love you? I said, yes. Do you know I love you? When I think of family, I'm grateful for all of it, for the laughter and the closeness, but also for the ruffled feather moments, those embarrassingly human collisions that test, but also affirm the bonds between us. They keep me coming back year after year to take my seat at the holiday table. <laughs>